Hello and welcome to Life Sciences in Queensland. My guest today is Professor Helen Bartlett, Vice-Chancellor and President of the University of the Sunshine Coast. A research specialist in health and aged care, Professor Bartlett's career includes inaugural director at the Australasian Centre on Ageing at the University of Queensland, the Oxford Centre for Healthcare Research and Development, and the Oxford Dementia Centre at Oxford Brookes University. Professor Bartlett has also held various leadership roles in universities across Australia, the United Kingdom, Hong Kong and Malaysia. Professor Helen Bartlett, welcome. I see that you are originally from the northwest of England. What's been the journey in coming to Queensland? Well, it's been quite a long journey. It's taken me around the world twice and um, has seen me living and working in uh, Western Australia, in Perth, in Hong Kong, regional Victoria, in Malaysia, and of course uh, now back in Queensland for the second time. And since being appointed Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Sunshine Coast, what's been your primary focus? Well, I've been um, in my position now for just over a year. And of course, um, I arrived, you know, uh, a little while after the pandemic had started. So a major aspect of my focus has been on ensuring that we manage our delivery of uh, teaching and learning uh, in a very uncertain environment with the pandemic. So ensuring that we pivot well uh, to online delivery, which has, occur uh, has occurred, of course, a number of times. Ensuring that our staff are prepared and upskilled with the new technologies that are now required. Listening to our students to see what their experiences are during this period and understanding their increasing needs for flexibility in how they access teaching and learning. Looking at our business model to ensure that it's contemporary um, and again thinking to the future where there are so many uncertainties and just um, generally ensuring that our products are fit for purpose in this very changing environment that we're, that, that we're working in. It is ever-changing as we know thanks to COVID. You were the previous chair of the Regional Universities Network. What do you see as the priorities for regional universities? The Regional Universities Network has been advocating for many years for, for regional universities and I think fundamentally we are absolutely convinced about the role of regional universities in, in their communities. So RUN is really a vehicle for articulating the value of regional universities as anchor institutions in their communities for the contribution that they make to regional uh, economic, social and cultural development. Also really critical is uh, ensuring that regional universities can be well-funded enough um, to deliver on their mission, which is about contributing to, to their communities as anchor institutions, but fundamentally ensuring that local students can access education in some of the um, most underperforming areas of the country in terms of completion of university degree education. In some of the um, areas that my uh, university's campuses are located in, 
the participation rates in post-secondary education are very, very low, sometimes around half of that of um, metropolitan universities. Mm. Do regional universities offer a slightly different experience for students compared to those in cap cities? It is different in terms of, I think, um, the environment that um, studies take place in. Class sizes do tend to be smaller, so it's a more intimate education experience. There's a greater attention to, particularly in the first year, to providing those wraparound support services. Our students have opportunities to work in their local communities, you know, and get placements and job experience in those communities. And I think most importantly they do have I think um, a greater access to their teachers um, than perhaps you might in in, you know, in the larger uh, metropolitan universities and then a final point here is that we know regional universities uh, the graduates from regional universities will generally go on to live and work in those regional settings. On average, seven out of ten graduates from regional universities will go on to work in regional locations. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, which is long-term beneficial to those regional centres who often struggle to keep people in those centres. You established the Australasian Centre on Ageing while at the University of Queensland. How significant was this step in influencing community ageing? The centre was very, very focused on engaging with peak groups, uh, peak bodies and lobby groups for, uh, for older people in assembling an agenda that was relevant uh, in terms of research. So we worked very closely with older uh, people's associations and peak bodies, with state government, with local government, uh, in terms of mapping out um, an agenda that was really focused on solving problems related to the consequences of an ageing population. But doing that in partnership in partnership with communities, with older people and with all levels of government. And we did that uh, by ensuring that the majority of our work was undertaken in partnership. So we partnered with community groups, with aged care providers and a a whole uh, raft of of stakeholders uh, to deliver our, our research so that the findings had a greater opportunity of being implemented in practice. So that was the focus and we talked um, about our research a lot in community forums and seminars and through the media. It was a very it was very focused on applied and translational research. Countries such as uh, Japan and Singapore appear to be uh, fairly well ahead of us in terms of their plans and policies related to ageing. How much can Australia learn from them? So Singapore and Japan in particular have taken a long-term view and they've looked at the consequences of ageing for the economy, for jobs, for the funding of health care and for long-term care. And I would say they've taken a very integrated 
uh, approach to, to doing this. Both of those countries have um, insurance schemes. Uh, they have integrated approaches to aged care, which combines um, health prevention and long-term care in a model that enables the, um, the consumer to navigate a system much more easily and to be assured that they are not going to be worrying into old age about how they're going to pay for care. So it's been a lot of anticipation, a lot of uh, integrated planning and long-term thinking that I think has positioned uh, both of those countries in a way that will ensure that longevity continues to be a good news story and not a burden um, on the economy. And when you look at that and read the uh, Royal Commission uh, report into aged care, it paints a, a pretty bleak picture of how we treat our older people. What's been your view of the report? The report has, um, in full glory, you know, identified so many of the long-standing issues in the sector. And really, while people, many people seem surprised at some of the uh, circumstances that were revealed by the report, it, it's been known for a long time that there were issues in the sector related to underfunding, to accessibility, uh, to training um, of staff and um, career tra- trajectories for staff and so on. What the Commission has done is, um, you know, now uh, comprehensively articulate the, the root cause and problem um, of the issues in, in the aged care sector and presents now a fantastic opportunity for major social policy reform. I think this is the opportunity for Australia to get it right finally, to really look at funding the sector properly, to look at introducing new legislation for aged care, to look at the governance um, of the sector, to look at how we encourage um, people to enter into this sector of care and find uh, successful and fulfilling careers. All of this is, is, you know, requiring a very committed plan. And the government has responded with a five-year plan. And so, you know, we hope that that plan will be successfully implemented um, to give older people greater certainty and to finally tackle some of these long, long-standing issues um, that have been challenging the sector for so long. You say that that aged care is not always a positive story, even with the advances in health and medical science and education. Why is that? There are a number of reasons, I think, for that. You know, there is still a a tendency um, in our society to view ageing as a deficit rather than something that, that is a positive contributor to society. And so, you know, in spite of the um, amazing health and medical advances, we're probably not seeing sufficient attention to the social aspects um, of ageing that could be easily addressed um, to ensure that society is thinking again longer term about, you know, the successful story of ageing. 
and how it, it can actually how it can celebrate the the longevity story and and this means really tackling issues um, around the stereotypes of aging looking at the inequalities that face different cohorts of older people women in particular who don't have the same level of uh, savings um, in their lifetime and often mean that their advanced years are going to be, you know, particularly challenging for them. Looking at in more detail how um, we preserve um, the um, contributions and active living opportunities of the older old groups of different um, cultural groups in Australia. I think these are all the things that we still need uh, greater attention to and not just focus on the health and medical um, successes that mm. we've achieved. What impact are organisations such as the University of the Third Aged, or what, what are they having on the ageing process? The University of the Third Age is, is offering older people an opportunity for learning within a social setting. It's not like, uh, you know, as structured as a university education might be, of course, but it, it's giving older people an opportunity to uh, take different courses in areas of interest and uh, including um, physical activity programs and then all the socialisation that uh, can happen around it. So it's not only a learning opportunity, it's an opportunity for engaging with older people, for um, developing more networks in later life, and for avoiding the, the problems of social isolation that can often lead to anxiety and depression. More than 20 years ago, the World Health Organization came up with the Active Aging Framework. Is it still relevant today? It's absolutely relevant. And um, the Active Aging Framework um, has definitely been influential in developing charters and frameworks, uh, particularly those created by the UN and the WHO, that look at how we address in, in our societies all aspects of, um, of aging. I think that the active ageing concept is, is very relevant, but it has had to expand in terms of looking at perhaps um, additional facets such as late life learning. The problem is, of course, that you know we're all very familiar with how it's addressed in the charters and the frameworks, but the next step is incorporating these concepts into policy and programme planning. And, and perhaps we're not seeing yet as much progress in that as, as we'd hoped for 20 years ago. But there is progress, and I think that, you know, with, with every year we, say, we see a greater effort to ensure that, that active ageing is, is addressed in a meaningful way um, in, in our programmes, delivery programmes and policies. We continue to see a lot of research in the health and medical field on ageing, but not so much, I understand, on later life learning. Why is that? I think that it's not something that um, has been a great focus in, in terms of thinking about the contribution of, of learning to uh, people's cognitive and physical health. There hasn't been as much funding for that area of research as there has been for medical and health research. 
and generally I think that um, it is something that uh, we're, we're seeing a greater interest and focus on um, and you know I'm hoping that in, in the future it will be an area that researchers uh, are more attracted to looking at but we, we need to understand so much more about the contribution of uh, late life learning to health and, and, and cognition in, in later life and we need dedicated programs of research I think to do that and, and you know where there's been um, an interest in the contribution of structured learning the different kinds of learning that um, are provided through um, U3A and other forms of late life learning I think you know, um, go much beyond w- what a structured learning program does. Is our ageing population up to the change, up to the challenges as we as we look forward five to ten years in Australia? Absolutely. Of course, with successive old, uh, successive co- cohorts of older people, you, you see a different profile in terms of uh, people's participation in the workforce, in society generally, and in terms of their better health. So I think that um, older people uh, as a, a you know a very broad and diverse group in society I think are becoming much more tuned into understanding their own needs advocating for them and um, wanting to be active players in decision making in policy making and program development and in society more broadly. Professor Helen Bartlett, uh, continued success in the work that you do, not only at the university, but uh, in your own research as well, here and around the world. And thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.